that, you know, maybe we'll get into today. Maybe we'll get into on a different day. Still a fun slogan. I like it. I'm Jamie Peck. I'm Sean KB. I'm AP Andy. Just kidding. I know I fooled you, but it's just me this time. Hi, but I'm not alone. Actually, I'm here with my friend uh, Marvin Gonzalez, who is a member of DSA's International Committee as well as a founding member of Emerge, a communist caucus out of New York City. Uh, he also works on The Partisan, which is a great publication put out by several different left caucuses working together in DSA. Uh, he's a gentleman. He's a scholar. He's a sex symbol in, in some circles. <laughs> what's, what's up, Marv? What's up? Uh, I can't believe you actually, uh, you actually went with the sex symbol um, hype. I'm, I'm into it. Don't write checks your ass can't cash. But you you liked it, so it's great. Um, so what do we got here? Um, so okay, guests, guests, friends, listeners, what am I doing? What am I saying? I don't know. Um, cut this part out. Uh, <laughs> so Marvin recently attended the uh, controversial in some circles, uh, Congreso Bicentario de los Pueblos in Venezuela, Mo Venezuela. Uh, and I wanted to have him on to talk about the experience and Venezuela more generally, uh, if that's all right. That's fine with me. I'm here already. Let's do it. All right, let's do it. I was going to give you props for a silly tweet you did earlier, but um, maybe we'll save that for the end. Now, I'm just going to read it now because I brought it up uh, and I have to. Uh, when you said... I think my biggest turnoffs on dating apps are people who describe themselves as spiritual or who post pictures of themselves doing active shit like kayaking. I disdain both spiritual and physical pursuits. And I just want to say big mood, big mood to that. It's true. Like, I feel like I don't, I don't want to see someone like ice climbing when I'm like on field, you know, I'm just trying to figure out if like, I'm vibing. like I want a picture and then like, three or four words that's it but then there's like all these people on field being like I'm really close to God yeah I just don't think it's appropriate well but okay counterpoint if you have someone on there who's like I lead a life of the mind please only match with me if you do as well that's also kind of annoying why are you on a kink website if you only live the life of the mind I feel like, you know, there's OkCupid for that. Yeah, fair enough. Well, I mean, I, that's a physical activity, no? That's a physical pursuit, sex. I feel I feel like you're just like trying to out-materialist me now. <laughs> <laughs> we are bodies. Bodies are made out of matter. No, like, it's not even that deep. It's just like, I have a list of things that are physical and sex is on them. So maybe you mean like, you know, things that, requires some physical fitness yeah I, I just don't want basically I don't want someone who can like you know fight me and probably win like that's really mostly what I meant all right so you you want a woman that you can physically overpower Ugh. this is a terrible segue <laughs> and, I wow. hate, and I hate it I did not know that this is where I was gonna go so sorry um well, you know what? Enough of that. Let's get into Venezuela because there's a lot of shit. There's a lot of shit to talk about. Um, 
this was in, in some circles, this was controversial that the DSA sent a delegation to this conference in Venezuela. Um, but maybe we could get started by talking about some of the basics. Um, what did this conference consist of? Who all was there? And what were your general impressions? Um, yeah, so so this conference, um, we were invited to it by the Simone Bolivar Institute, um, which is tasked with uh, developing kind of two ways um, solidarity, sol solidarity relationships uh, between Venezuela and socialist projects around the world. Um, they invited us, uh, the, the National Political Committee, which is DSA's highest body, actually unanimously voted to attend. Uh, and then it was ratified by the steering committee of the International Committee. So we went there from July 20th to uh, June 3rd. Um, we had like one day on each end where we were just traveling, but we were present in Venezuela and active from um, June, 20, June 20th to July 3rd. Uh, the first day was really, you know, so we did go to the, the Congreso Bicentenial, De los Pueblos del Mundo, but that was really kind of just like the, the four days. We were there for like 14 days. Uh, most, most of what we actually did was visit the commons. Um, but the first four days was the, the conference where um, essentially um, all different types of socialist groups from across the world attended. Uh, there were obviously very heavy delegations from Latin America. Uh, from there was also a very heavy delegation from Africa. And then there were um, some delegations from uh, the Middle East, from Southeast Asia, uh, and, and from also from China. Um, I think about 1,300, 12, I think 1,200 delegates were present. And um, it, it, was, it was an interesting Congress because the, the the Venezuelans really didn't take charge of it. They kind of assembled it as a um, kind of as a place for all of these parties to kind of talk about internationalism and how basically how you know U.S. hegemony has has fucked over all of their um, kind of projects of sovereignty. So we heard a lot from like people. Um, from Bolivia, obviously, but we also heard from people in Nicaragua. We heard from people in the Dominican Republic. We heard from people uh, in Haiti or from Haiti. Um, and a lot of it was about kind of the need to kind of come together to um, act as a block if they were going to kind of have some strength against the, the North American um, empire, right? Uh, it's clear to them that like a project of, you know, state socialism cannot overcome um, American imperial hegemony. So a lot of what was talked at the Congress was this idea called the um, La Gran Patria, which is a, a Bolivarian concept from like the from the early you know 1800s, from the actual like uh, Latin American revolutions, um, which is this idea of kind of like pan -Lat pan Latin American uh, solidarity. It means the greater homeland, right? Um, often people will talk about you know. La Patria, which is the homeland, and then, but then they also allude to like the Gran Patria, the greater homeland, and and it's just this concept that these Latin American countries have to work together as a kind of like confederation of states, or else they're just going to be kind of um, picked apart by by American empire. 
Word. So um, I know I saw some Twitter noise about, uh, I guess, some of your ostensible comrades saying that you guys shouldn't have gone or that, you know, going to Venezuela sends the wrong message to the American working class about what we're talking about when we talk about socialism. Uh, how did, what's what's your response to all that? Or is it just a few people that like we shouldn't even be talking about because they don't matter? Um, I think a little bit of both, a little bit of, uh, of column A, a little bit of column B. I, I, I do think that, you know, there is some micro sect stuff happening here where, where um, people want DSA to adopt this kind of very um, particular line on some of these, um, some of the, the stuff that's kind of internal to these countries and, and and I think that there, there is, there is something to it. I think we we can kind of criticize and learn from the mistakes of um, of what's happening in Latin America. However, I, I think that there needs to be kind of an order of operations, um, and that's kind of the the line that we've taken in the international community, right? Um, like the 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 Venezuelans and people like Cuba. Um, you know they they are under like these like very like just criminal criminal sanctions um that that has made um that has made you know the socialist project that they're trying to undertake very difficult and oftentimes um look 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 very distorted right things that we uh in as socialists in, in the uh the belly of the beast as che Guevara would say you know kind of find uncomfortable um so, so I think that you know, what what we kind of talk about is that sovereignty isn't isn't a kind of um, a way to not discuss these things, but rather it's a framework that that these things have to be whatever whatever things are being um, whatever problems are happening internal to these to these countries, they have to kind of be resolved. Uh, internal to the framework of sovereignty. Um, so if that's kind of what we can do to help uh, the, these countries. I think to get a little bit more specific um, about DSA and maybe about like the geopolitical stuff, um, DSA in 2019, um, in our last convention, we passed a resolution saying that we would make Latin America our priority region. Um, which means that we put a lot of effort into developing contacts in Latin America. We've done these delegations. Um, this is actually kind of our second delegation. Our first delegation was to be uh, election observers in Peru. That went a little bit kind of, uh, that was great, but we didn't end up actually being election observers because Peru at the last minute pulled our credentials. However, we decided to go anyway um, and kind of just um, met with organizers there and were on the ground. Um, after that, we did this delegation. Um, and like I said, we passed a resolution saying we would make Latin America a priority, but we also that resolution also said that we would prioritize mass organizations, working with mass organizations. Um, and I think that regardless of what you think about Pesuve, Pesuve is a party of 8 million people uh, in a country of 30 million. Um, they routinely win elections um, and even the opposition uh, you know, a lot of the opposition party does not 
the five of them, there's about five big ones, um, the right wing opposition parties, or, you know, we call them right wing, but, you know, they would call themselves social Democrats, right? Um, they, uh, they would say that they're part of like the socialist international and they're, you know, part of the socialist project there. But there's a reason why DSA left the socialist international, right? We don't really think that that's true. We think that the socialist international has been kind of become a international of neoliberalism. So we consider them right wing. Um, that's a tangent. Um, oh, that's but, important to understand though. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that like that's often gets discursively used against us um, without kind of understanding DSA's actual position here, right? Like we know that these parties consider themselves social democrats. Um, it's like, hey, uh, we have socialism at home and then socialism at home is like Juan Guaido. Right, right, exactly. Um, yeah, he, he, his party, or I think what they're, what are they called? Popular unity. Um, yeah, they're accept, they were accepted into the socialist international, right? It, and I think that that speaks to uh, how more I did not know that. become. What's that? Oh my God. I did not know that. Yeah. Yeah. That's hilarious. It's, it's hilarious in the sense that the socialist international sucks and it's, it speaks very highly that DSA left the Socialist International. And we didn't leave the Socialist International yesterday, right? We left it in 2017. Um, so we think DSA has thought that Socialist International has been a right-wing formation for a long while now. So um, yeah, I, I, that does get used against us, right? Like I think we were, someone tweeted about how like the last party, um, the last per one of the last presidents in power was a member of um, Acción Democrática, which is also a member of the Socialist International. Um, and we called them right wing and they were like, oh, look at how, you know, much these dumb uh, uh, gringos know, right? Like they they don't even know that these part that these like parties are socialists, but we do know that it's just not our analysis. We don't think they're socialists. Mm -hmm. Fair enough. So, okay, then what were you hoping to achieve here as a member of DSA's International Committee? And what does proletarian internationalism mean to you? I think, what were we trying to achieve? I think there's a couple things that we were trying to achieve. I would say three things we were trying to achieve. The first thing is that we attended the, the Congreso, right? Um, and that was really kind of a, kind of a, a relational thing, right? We, we, we met with so many people from different parties. We met with Jamie Vargas, who used to be um, the president of the Confederation of uh, Indigenous Nations. I'm, I'm, I'm saying the acronym wrong, but um, you know, a major, a major luminary in Ecuador. Uh, we met with comrades from MAS. We met from comrades from uh, Morena. So what we were doing was kind of building relationships with these with these organizations. Um, one of the things that's up for debate at this convention is whether the whether DSA should join the Sao Paulo Forum, right? Um, a lot of the people who attended these are members of the Sao Paulo Forum. They're the kind of people that we were going to need to talk to if we do vote to um, to make that happen. Which which looks like we will because that resolution made the, made the consent form, the consent can, agenda. Can you explain what that is briefly for those who might the not know? The consent agenda or the Sao Paulo? The, 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 the Sao Paulo Forum. Yeah, the Sao Paulo Forum is a, 
it's an it's a grouping of international um, parties that meet every two years uh, to discuss um, to discuss essentially like uh, progressive politics in uh, the Western Hemisphere. Um, there is no North American member, um, so we would be the first, and it would be a really big deal. Um, it, it is attended by um, the the FMLN in from San Salvador, from sorry, from El Salvador. Vesuve um, is involved. Um, the, the Workers Party from Brazil is involved. It's really a um, a forum to to discuss the construction of progressive and socialist politics in our hemisphere, and it meets every two years. It also it also does a little bit of work in between the forums. For instance, they they were going to send people to to Peru along with us, um, but they did not after after Peru pulled everyone's credentials. Essentially, um, Peru didn't just uh, pull our credentials. They pulled the Progressive International's um, credentials. They pulled the Sao Paulo, Sao Paulo Forum's credential. Um, essentially, it's it's it, it'll be joining an international of the Western hemisphere that is very um, strong in Latin America. Cool, that's interesting. Um, that sort of ties into a question from our Discord community um, where they were asking, mm, what should the rest of us learn from this experience? And are there any other parties that uh, you, they would want to do diplomacy with? Um, they said Peru Libre, MAS, Cuba, the German communists, etc. Um, yeah, so it's interesting. Um, right now, or my, I just got, I just started a new term on the International Committee. Um, I'm a member of the Secretariat, which is the diplomatic wing of the International Committee. My last term, I was a liaison to the Americas. So I was working very heavily with American groups. Um, so the, the groups that, you know, we were very interested in building relationships were the Workers' Party, PSOL in Brazil, um, MAS in, um, in Bolivia, uh, Nuevo Peru, we do have already an existing relationship with. One of them actually attended um, our, they attended our convention in 2017, I believe. Yeah. Um, but we also build new relationships with Peru Libre, which is Pedro Castillo's party. Um, we also wanted, I think a, a big um, group that we wanna build a relationship with is Morena um, in Mexico. Uh, but that was last year. I actually have been shifted over to Europe, um, which I uh, know a little bit less about, um, but we'll, um, have already met with people uh, specifically from Spain because I speak Spanish. So we've met with people from, you know, Podemos. We've met people from uh, actually Barcelona and Comun. Uh, so we also have we also have relationships with people from Dialinka. Um, so there's there's a lot of groupings that we want to start building relationships with. Like I said, uh, the Americas is our priority. So most of the Secretariat's resources go to building relationships with Latin America. Um, but we still do have relationships with people from all across the world. Cool, cool. So, okay, I'm really interested in your visits to the Comunos because that is the thing that interests me the most about the entire project, right? Because I'm a communist and I believe in all power to the Soviets. And I read uh, George Chikorilla Mars' excellent book, Building the Commune, about this project in Venezuela. So, can you describe a little bit about uh, 
what the A, I guess, what the communos are and what they're like and what role they play in the day-to-day -day governance of Venezuela. Yeah, um, shout out to George. He actually hit us up before, he hit me up before we left with recommendations about, you know, which communes to visit um, while we were there. So uh, read his book, it's great. Oh um, yeah, friend of the show. Uh, so yeah, so this is actually the second reason we were there. The first part was to go to the Congreso. The second part was to visit the communes. Uh, you know, the the IC is is pretty split on how to view kind of Venezuela, right? Like we're pretty united on the idea that the order of the the order of the day is to end sanctions, right? Beyond that, how to understand Besuve's role in the crisis, uh, how to understand Besuve as you know. Um, one of the leaders in the internationalist movement. These are all kind of contested issues within the international committee. Um, however, there is very broad agreement that the communes are fucking cool as hell. So when we were when we were set when we were told that we had some few extra days after the Congress, um, they, the the Simone Bolivar Institute um, they asked us what we wanted to do. Right? They were like, we will build an itinerary around uh, the places that you want to visit. And what everyone agreed upon was that they wanted to visit the communes. So what are the communes? Uh, the communes are basically kind of a dual power system, right? Uh, they're meant they're meant to uh, create participatory um, and um, one of the, one of the cool words that like they use to describe it is protagonistic. Like they, it's a it's a form of protagonistic politics where the people involved in it are not, you know, it's not a, it's not a representative um, politics. It's a protagonistic. The people not are, a bourgeois are part of politics, it. right? Um, so it's a it's an interesting but kind of complicated structure. So essentially, in 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 Venezuela, there are these things called communal councils. Um, and communal councils are made up about 150 to 200 families. Um, and there is a law that was passed to make these happen, right? Like these councils are, even though they're, even though it's a form of dual power, it's a form of dual power that's interestingly enough supported uh, often by the, the Pesuve government. One of the things that Chavez did was pass a law that created communal councils. My understanding is that communal councils exist in pretty much every neighborhood, right? Not just the poor neighborhoods, but also middle-class and, um, and I'm sometimes upper middle-class too, right? And communal councils are, they're made up of different um, internal internal conferences, or like internal councils um, about, you know, security, uh, how to manage certain, the affairs of, of these families, um, things like that about five to seven communal councils have got, um, get together and they make what they're called the communes. And the communes are basically um, these, these forms of participatory uh, government that um, the way they describe it is they territorialize politics. They're meant, they're meant to kind of take a specific um, part of, of the country and create um, participatory politics for the people involved. So again, about, you know, five to seven communal councils made up about 150 to 400 families um, are what make the communes. Um, and we visited about 10 of these communes. Um, so, 
you know, oftentimes what we're talking about are, um, you know, participatory structures that uh, incorporate thousands and thousands of people. Like one of some of these like councils had like, you know, uh, 10,000 people in it. Uh, and they are involved in basically administering administering the day-to-day -day of their um of their community uh they they often have their they own their doctors uh they have um, their own security councils they have participatory budgeting and when we were there what we learned is that there's um they're kind they're in the construction of these things called communal cities and communal cities will be basically the, the next rung in the ladder it will be a um, conglomeration of com of communes. So about like five to 10 communes will get together and create these communal cities. The laws haven't been passed yet. They're still kind of being debated. Um, so the structure isn't set in stone, but you know, from what I talked to with people there, the, the hope is that these structures will replace the mayor and the governor. Um, they, they are that's the intention of the communeros right they, they want to replace essentially the state so this is this is why the communes are kind of every beloved by everyone they're beloved by like kind of communists anarchists um a lot of like um social like left social democrats because they are they are ways of um getting people in the political process um a, a politicizing large swaths of people about their, you know, people are constantly voting in Venezuela and, and also as a way of kind of undermining and not undermining, but perhaps kind of slowly uh, dismantling the machinery of the state. So based, I mean, I like them for that reason. Um, how, how do you think that's working? Like, are they really playing a role in a process of social transformation towards socialism or even, dare I say it, communism? And additionally, what is their relationship to the state writ large? They, let me start with the last question first. Um, it depends on, on who you're talking about, right? In the state, right? This Pesuve as a, as a policy has you know, they, they created the laws that called for the formations of, of the communes. That's, um, that's so, the ruling and, party, just to be clear. Yes. The PSUV is PSUV, uh, the Partido Socialista Unido de Venezuela, the, the Unified Socialist Party of Venezuela, um, which is kind of a, has a really cool history because um, when Chavez first ran, he kind of ran as a kind of a nationalist, um, as a left nationalist. Um, but you know he wasn't fooling anyone, and the United States still tried to coup him. Uh, so after the United States tried to coup him, he was like, "Fuck it, I'm a socialist. I'm just gonna say it because people are still gonna try to coup me no matter what I say." Hell yeah! And so he said it, and then after he said that, in he he called for all of these organizations in Venezuela to put their differences aside and create a mass socialist party so when you know when you say the the united socialist party of venezuela it is actually a united party right it's made up of like i think 20 to 25 um different socialist parties that came together to create it uh so that's pesuve so so pesuve has been broadly supportive and kind of instrumental in the construction of communes um but you know Venezuela is a democratic socialist project. There is there are opposition parties. Uh, a lot of the people in the opposition do not love the idea 
of mayors and governors that they control uh, being gotten rid of, right? That's one thing. Has the part, has Pesuve done a good enough job of supporting the commons? That's also kind of up for debate. You know, they have supported it, but some of, some of the criticisms from the left have been that they haven't been supported enough. Um, what they mean by that is that the communes are really dope. They, they do great things about like kind of recycling, um, about doing waste management systems, about like doing internal policing that is not um, like militarized because Venezuela does have a problem with police violence. So the, the communes often try to like um, reimagine kind of um, what community security looks like. And that's all been successful, but um, they, they're not really industrialized yet, right? So um, the left has often wanted the state to provide the materials to kind of uh, industrialize a lot of these projects and to scale them up at a at a bigger um, at a bigger at a bigger uh, size. Uh, you know whether whether the state has done a good enough job. That's kind of some of the debates within Venezuela, right? From on the left. Uh, some people say that they haven't, some people say that they haven't because of the sanctions. So it depends kind of where you fall. Uh, I forgot the other question you asked though. Oh, um, no big deal. Just their role in this process of social transformation. Like what, what role are they playing? Do you think they're helping move the ball towards uh, socialism? Um, I, you know, one of the things that I was struck by is how instrumental political education is to um is to the communes every commune that we visited has a political education committee and they are all very well read uh you know they all know very specific dates in latin american history um they can quote a lot of socialists you know some american socialists better than i than i don't i think i or anyone else on the delegation could so they do a lot of great political education and I think that's a very important part of constructing socialism. I think in terms of in terms of building socialism concretely, I mean, I think you and I might 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 differ here, right, uh, Jamie? Because I think that like part of what they're focused on is kind of building kind of productive processes um, that that seem kind of capitalistic sometimes. But I think that's part of part of what they're trying to do is create self-sufficiency. Um, and I think that that's part of, of, of the socialist project, right? Of creating the means to be self-sufficient. Um, but I think it's a it's an open question, right? I think it's a I think it's a very provocative and interesting project. Uh, and it's been going on for 20 years and has done a lot of really cool, um, interesting stuff, especially given uh, you know, North American um, antipathy to it. Um, I, I'd be really interested to see how these projects would flourish if they were allowed to. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <clears throat> I mean, I think this is an open question on our podcast and in general. Um, and we have people with all different kinds of opinions about it. And I'm still deciding what I think. Um, but I think George, George's book is good because it comes from a very principled um, principled left com perspective that is also dealing with the realities right like he said to us when we had him on a while back um when you get caught between capitalism and socialism you get punished for the sins of both 
And he used the example of the Venezuelan government trying to set price controls on certain goods. But, oh, wait, uh, they don't own the means of production yet. And, and private capitalists control these goods. So then they can you get a situation where they're like refusing to sell chicken in the stores or whatever. And that's bad. Like uh, he he really takes care to describe uh, the problems of Venezuela as sort of the inevitable outcome of re real world attempts at a road to socialism or, or communism that goes incrementally, basically nationalizing some industries, but not others, and kind of stopping short of ideally where we would want to be. Um, but I don't think he condemns it along those lines, right? Like, Maybe it's not possible to really have socialism in one country, but that but does that mean we shouldn't try? I don't know. That's uh, kind of where I'm that's kind of where I'm landing. You know, I, 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 I think I think that. Many of these countries would agree that there, there is no socialism in one country, and I think that that's why they're so invested in like things like the Congreso by centennial right like they're interested in, in having these linkages i think that the question of like of like venezuela specifically though like it's not just about socialism in one country it's about it is really about like democratic socialism and i think that people uh especially north americans people in dsa should should look at it very like um you know for lessons uh because a lot of some of the lessons that you'll learn is like if you try to do this democratically what's going to happen is there's going to be a capital strike right like that's exactly what you're describing and i think that and that's kind of what we saw in 2014 to 2017 2018. um you know the the a lot of companies refusing to move food into the market um we saw a lot of them move money out out of venezuela like physically move the currency out of venezuela um and i think that you're right if we if we don't kind of do it all at once um these are just kind of problems that we have to face so i think rather than look at venezuela as kind of a failure of like you know socialism we should look at it as like you know a, a laboratory especially one that you know if we're not going to commit to like an armed insurrection against the state these are going to be also like problems that we are also going to have to face if if we're lucky right like unless we are like, if we're not lucky, then, you know, we'll never have to face it because capital will always keep its boot around our neck. Yeah, true. I mean, it is really sad how hard it is to imagine any kind of revolution happening in this country, even down to like a fucking lame ass political revolution, right? Like, I'm, I mean, I talk even shit, but like, we can't even get, we can't even get fucking health care, which makes me think, I don't know, in some ways, I feel like that encourages maximalist thinking, like all or nothing. Like we're never ever, we're not going to have a political revolution the way that Bernie thinks we could. Um, so we're just going to have to have a social revolution. And this is why, uh, I don't know, this is, I think this is part of the draw to communization theory, which has been characterized by some as spontaneous urban Paul Pot, but I think there's a little more to it than that just just the idea we have that dope ass characterization of it uh what 
who said that it was a spontaneous poll puck that's kind of an awesome dude. no i think it's fucking hilarious um friend of the show alex gendler repeated it to me i don't know where he got it from nice i'm not sure but yeah that would be fucking based but um yeah just the idea that we could go you know you could have this grand chain reaction global proletarian revolution which is an old idea Right. Going back to uh, Panacoke, Pancake Man and the German Dutch Council Communists. But uh, just the like looking at the difficulties, the immense difficulties that have faced people who try to do it uh, incrementally or with half measures and said, you know what, maybe that's not going to work. Maybe next time around, it's going to be this grand uh, apocalyptic event only not apocalyptic because it's actually going to save the world and we're going to overthrow all the states at once and produce in that process, produce communism. And I really, I really like that idea, but until that happens and I don't know how much we can do to make it happen. I think we're stuck with these, these realities and these examples of people trying to build socialism in the world, which are also quite valuable. And I think it's impossible to know right now what role they will or will not play on the road to global communism. But I think it's very likely in retrospect, they will say, oh, you know what? That was actually pretty important. So that's kind of where I stand. Yeah, I mean, I. I, I'm a lot more, I feel, I feel a lot more sympathetic to the idea of spontaneous social revolution outside of the imperial core. I think in the, I, I think in the imperial core, so much of what goes, goes on is like a intentional, like ideological counter insurrection, right? Against revolutionary thought and even even against spontaneity right um that that kind of pacifies like pacifies us so i don't know if i'm against the idea of spontaneity in general it's just it's hard for me to really imagine um spontaneous like a, a spontaneous social revolution in the imperial core that being said i'm also kind of you know critical of this idea of like socialist construction as like um this linear thing of like keeping organizing and building on on and building on our past wins you know there, there has to be some sort of like construction but you know capitalism is prone to crisis the idea that we can just like keep building and like you know like ignores the fact that kind of like whatever we build will there'll be a there'll be a crisis that really kind of um will shake that up so i, I don't know where i stand um yeah i i'm i'm not i'm somewhere in between i think of, of being sympathetic to both organization and spontaneity yeah i mean it's so hard to predict it's so hard to predict what's going to set it off but i mean we had an insurrection in this country last summer and you know the liberals want to sanitize it and act like it was oh it was pretty much all peaceful except for a few you know white anarchists causing trouble or whatever but no like this shit really happened and it was led by black proletarians and it was a multiracial uprising and people were fucking pissed off and ready to throw down on a level that we haven't seen in quite some time in this country so 
uh, I mean, I'm still hopeful, but I'm also, yeah. Absolutely. I, I just think that, I think it's also a really good example of what I mean of how, like, you know, the, the ruling class is very, like, um, strategically geared towards, you know, a, what I would call, like, an ideological counterinsurgency, right? Like, yeah, absolutely. you know, there was an insurrection, and, and, like, the ruling class worked very quickly and fast to, uh, to kind of, undermine a lot of the forms of like racial solidarity that were happening uh, to undermine a lot of like the loss of legitimacy that was happening and to kind of steamroll any possibility of change right like uh, one of the things that Biden did was provide more you know funding to to the um, the police so I just think that kind of um, yeah I agree I just think that there is uh, one of the things that I think I learned from Bernie Sanders was that us organizing will make the capitalist class organize as well, right? Anytime we organize, they will organize in response to us. And that's something that we kind of have to kind of uh, just take into account. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a, a formulation that I've seen that I think is sort of interesting and true um, from an article in EndNotes called Onward Barbarians that we've talked about before on this podcast is basically the material conditions of our time have produced revolutionaries without a revolution. And how we go from that to revolution, I'm not sure, but it seems very apparent looking at either the George Floyd uprising, the movement of the squares, the Arab Spring, like so many different examples, it seems very true, right? People are pissed off, they're ready to throw down, but. Um, they really have yet to, there, there, there are new organizational forms that have yet to arise that would really uh, enable them to build some kind of lasting institutional power rather than what we see happening now where they kind of erupt and die down again. And then, you know, they might not start back up again for years. I, I think, yeah, I think that's really interesting. And I think to kind of um, pull it back to Venezuela, you know, one of the questions that we were asked often is like, oh, were people really weird about you guys being from the United States where they were like, you know, both both because of, you know, you're from like the Imperial Corps or just be, or even because they think that like socialism in the United States is a joke. Um, and and what we found was actually quite the opposite. You know, one of the they, they, they talk about the United States not as like the country of like you know white supremacy or any of that which it is but when they talk about the united states one of the things you're like you are from the land of great revolutionaries you know you're from the land of like martin luther king from malcolm x from black lives matter um and i think it's interesting that that's that's kind of the way that they see us yeah that's very that's very nice of them to focus on the positive things about america i really appreciate that Ernie's getting excited about this topic. Yeah, he he gets he gets really uh, excited anytime he gets really excited anytime I mention Malcolm X. He's a stan. <laughs> nice as as are we all. Um, so yeah, back to Venezuela. Uh, I feel like I'm jumping around a little in my ADD brain, but that's all right. People are fucking used to it by now, or they should be. Um, okay, if if the revolutionaries of the U.S. are revolutionaries without a revolution. Um, and the revolutionaries of Venezuela are revolutionaries with a revolution. Um, what role 
do, does all of this play and i mean you can you can put in your own two cents you can say what people on the ground think who you talk to what role do you think this plays in the long-term fight for social transformation and global communism big question i know um it's interesting because so one of the you know when we met with the foreign minister the, the foreign minister of north america um one of the things that he said was you know venezuela is a capitalist country it is it is a country with a socialist government and it is a country with a socialist revolution but it is still a capitalist country um and and it's a country with a revolution for 20 years right uh so so what does it mean for socialist um construction right uh, and socialist revolution uh i think it, it means exactly what what you say all the time right that there's no socialism in one country there there's just no way that like one country can by itself overcome uh so many contradictions right yeah the, the legacy of colonialism the legacy of uh its economy kind of being being uh reduced to this kind of mono export economy of being a, a petro state right um one of one of the reasons that there was this huge crisis in 2014 to 2016 is because um you know right before that like barrel the barrel of oil was being sold at about 125 dollars a barrel right uh in 2014 uh saudi arabia with the support of the u.s government decided to flood the market so that it could control market share um which meant that uh the price of oil went down to 25 dollars a barrel right that um that dim like decimated the the venezuelan economy um and a lot of criticisms have been like well why doesn't Pavan Pesuve like just just you know diversified their economy um well the truth is there it's been a petro state for a hundred years that at at the behest of like the United States the United States has supported multiple dictators uh in Venezuela it even and even when they nationalized uh uh PD uh PDVSA, which is the state-owned um, oil company, uh, the United States and its allies still had um, very favorable contracts with that, with, with, with PDVSA, um, PDVSA, that, that basically did not, did not really work for most people in the government, right? Like, didn't work for most people in Venezuela. It worked very well for consumers in the Imperial Corps, but it didn't really work well for Venezuela as a whole. One of the reasons that um, one of the reasons that the United States immediately kind of um, hated Chavez was that one of the first things he did was end a lot of these favorable contracts with U.S. companies. Um, but that was kind of the great contradiction of the Venezuelan society, right? Like it it, it did all of this social transformation uh, at an and it was paid by by um by oil uh so as, as we approach kind of like you know the 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 middle of the century where um where climate change is going to 
radically just change our society. Uh, how does a country like Venezuela, um, you know, prepare to transition away from 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 oil while also while also providing the services that made Pesuve such a kind of um, popular party? Uh, and the, the answer is that it can't do it alone, right? Like it, it needs, there needs to be kind of, there's a climate debt that has to be paid, but also it has to work um, in, in collaboration with, with the people in its region, which is why it's so important that like the US stops meddling uh, in that region and stops destabilizing the governments around it. Um, there's, there's just no way that um, socialism uh, will be allowed to, to like kind of prosper in that region, um, especially in a way that can be fair and just to the people who are going to face the brunt of climate change, unless the United States um, radically changes its own kind of foreign policy. And that's up to us. Yeah, I mean, that is <clears throat> definitely the, the immediate stakes of any conversation that we have about Venezuela here in the US because you know we could go back and forth as to what kind of critical support is exactly the right kind but at the end of the day um it's kind of just nerds jerking each other off if we don't have any power to you know do anything but what we can try to do is influence our own government and that needs to be at the forefront of any conversation any statement i totally agree on that i would just add that like we have less power when it comes to kind of fighting for what we want, right? We have less power to have to, to get some to get the president um, to like just lift these sanctions, right? Like um, we have less power to do that. However, when we delegitimize the state, that is also that is powerful too, right? Um, if, if the left is con continues to contribute to the delegitimizing delegitimizing, oh, I can't say that word, That's delegitimizing okay. of, uh, of Venezuela, then, then that strengthens, like, you know, the, 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 the reasons for, the, the supposed reasons that the government says um, there should be these sanctions. So I think we, we should be, we should be honest about that. Like, yes, we don't have a lot of power to change things for the better, but we have a lot of powers to like, you know, contribute to maintaining the status quo. Fair enough. So, okay, we touched on the crisis a little bit before, and I would like to know, um, how has the crisis developed since it was in the news uh, a couple of years ago? Um, has COVID made an impact? Has it showed signs of being resolved? Like, what was your sense on the ground? The height of the crisis was really around 2018, right? You have, uh, on the one hand, you have the... Um, the the crisis of the economy where the economy kind of contracts radically and then you have you have a political crisis where a lot of the groups um use this to, to kind of foment counter counter revolution um to the point where there was very very real concern of civil war um, breaking out in venezuela um there were definitely skirmishes of it right like um you there's a famous video of um middle class people setting a uh person of color on fire because they think he's a chavista right and they think he's a chavista because he's a person of color to be clear um 
there's also the uh, destruction of university campuses that happened by the right wing student movement. Uh, we actually toured this in in, um, in Barcelona, uh, in Venezuela. We, we toured the campus that is actually now one of the tasks of the communes right now is to restore this um, and to make it functional again, but also to make it functional for the community um, and not and not the uh, the middle class uh, that it traditionally served. Basically, civil war almost broke out. Um, however, it didn't. Uh, kind of the the government. There was a lot of so this is kind of where a lot of the accusations of author, authoritarianism starts to come in right um which i think we should be both kind of honest about and also try to contextualize um there there were some kind of repressive measures that were put in place um at the same time the country was literally on the verge of a civil war as their economy contracted and um, and as the U.S. government has started to impose some of the the, the very severe sanctions, right? The uh, President Obama had had um, done some sanctions uh, starting in 2014, which were not good, but they were very focused on um, kind of political operatives, kind of restricting their visas and whatnot. Uh, Trump, on the other hand, started targeting their economy. Um, you know, he first started with 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 um, not being able to trade certain uh, Venezuelan securities. He escalated to what is called the oil embargo, uh, which you know prevented trade with um, PDVSA. And then finally, there was what what is called the total embargo, um, which is a little bit you know a contested term because essentially what happened was he made it uh, illegal to, to kind of trade with. Um, with the Venezuelan state, and by illegal, I mean you know if, if you did that, you'd be put on a black on a blacklist. We won't trade with you if you trade with them. Well, there'll be fines, all of that stuff. Um, however, private businesses were on papers you could still have um, you could still have commercial relationships with private enterprises. That gets very complicated though because all of these private enterprises have kind of these relationships with the state. So in practice, what ended up happening for a bit was. Um, a very like kind of full embargo. As as the you know one thing that we learned and one thing that we heard continually is that you know the sanctions were terrible and um, there was very real hunger there and there is still a lot of hunger but there was like this particular moment where people were you know starving to death. Um, the sanctions killed about 40,000 people at least. That's a probably a conservative number. Yeah. Most of them were probably children. Um, so, so there was a very, very bad period in Venezuela. My sense from when we got there is that there was still malnutrition, there was still hunger. However, um, stability had been, uh, kind of brought back to the country. Uh, the state had kind of learned how to kind of maneuver around the embargo, right? Um, through relationships with, um, you know, other probably embargoed countries like um, Iran, um, trading with Turkey, trading with Cuba, uh, you know, learning some probably like not so legal ways of getting around the uh, the embargo. But stability had kind of been brought back. Um, like I said before, um, Venezuela has been a, a very kind of like a it's been a, a mono 
uh, economy, right? It's been completely focused on, on oil to the point where it, it, it had no real food sovereignty um, before the crisis. Um, one, one fact that I learned is that now 80% of processed food is being made in Venezuela. Um, so, so they've brought not only stability, but they've also learned um, new techniques to kind of um, be more sovereign, right? Food sovereignty being a big one. Um, yeah, so I, I would say the way I would describe it is that stability has been brought back. Uh, the economy is not chugging along by any means, but there is, you know, um, Pedereza has started producing oil again at a fraction of what it was, you know, in the mid, in the mid tens. Um, but there's still very much hunger. There's still very much malnutrition. Uh, there's still a lot of you know, medicine insecurity. There's still a lot of um, child mortality. There's still a lot of like maternal uh, death rates. Um, things that did not exist, honestly, before 2014. Right. Ay, ay, ay. <clears throat> well, okay, staying on this for a minute. Um, what should we think about the opposition at this point? You said stability has kind of been restored. And I think Guaido specifically has become kind of a clown-like figure on the international left at this point. Like you've, we've all seen the memes. They're just, it's fun. It's funny to laugh at him, but like how, how should, what's really going on with the opposition? Do they pose a threat to the socialist project in Venezuela? Um, So I think, okay, how do I answer this? One, one thing to, I guess to, 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 to address your first thing about how like Guaido has kind of been a clown uh, in the international left, he's also considered a clown even amongst the right-wing opposition. Um, one of the things that you know we noticed is that there's a lot of graffiti um, often in support of the right-wing opposition leaders, but they're not, they're not, um, uh, they're not for Guaido, they're for like Leopold Lopez, right? There, there are other um, right, right wing um, leaders that does that do have support and are not doing, are not in support of Guaido's bid for presidency, uh, who actually are not in support of the tactic of um, uh, boycotting the elections. Um, who I think the the big one of the big parties like their logo their not logo their motto is you know we win at the ballot so so to answer your question about why though yeah he's kind of been delegitimized even amongst the right wing in Venezuela um, do they pose a threat um, I, I think that the I think that they always do because. Um, I, I think to tie this back to like, let's, let's think about Cuba, that's what's happening right now, right? Um, what's happening in Cuba is that there are very real um, grievances against the Cuban government, um, specifically because their, their economy has also contracted as a result of the pandemic, right? A lot of their um, resources come from tourism. Um, there's a lot of medical insecurity there. So there's a lot of very real grievance um, that wasn't politicized in the way that we're talking about it in the United States. But the moment that some of these grievances kind of start happening 
they immediately become, you know, vectors for a kind of counterinsurgency. Um, and I think that's what we're seeing in, in Cuba, right? That like these people who were trying to have conversations with the government, with the Cuban government, um, are now being kind of used as like SOS Cuba, which my understanding was not really the, um, the start of some of these protests, right? So I think in that way, um, as long as like there are these sanctions that have um, food insecurity, that cause food insecurity, that, that are causing death in Venezuela, I think the right wing can always kind of mobilize um, against that, right? I think one of the things that we're seeing in Venezuela is um, relative, like very low participation rates in the um, in the in the government in the elections, right? Um, that's one of the ways that it's used to delegitimize their their government is by saying that like you know there's not a lot of people participating, which is true. It's absolutely true, but it's also because um, there's a certain depoliticizing effect to kind of living on the brink of like survival, right? Um, and I think that as long as that's the case, then 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 yeah, they're 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 they are dangerous. Yeah, and as we all know, uh, you can be depoliticized and still participate in elections. In fact, I would venture to guess that most of the people who vote in elections are victims of depoliticization because most people in general are. Like even us on the far left in our little communist club, like it's hard to envision sometimes, at least for me, uh, that, that we could really win and a better world is really possible. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I, I, I do think that, I do think that there, I, I don't think that voting is like a, a very like high benchmark for, for political, um, for like a political act, right? I do think that in terms of just like analyzing a society, it's probably like a good barometer of thinking about how engaged people are in 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 their political system, right? Like just as a barometer of that. Um, I think that the US is a good example of that, right? Like we have very, very low turnout. Um, I don't, that's not like me saying, you know, rock the vote or anything. I think it's just kind of a, a an analytical thing that we can think about, right? Like. Um, most people just don't give a shit about um, politics. They don't think that it matters um, in the United States. Um, not, not, to say that, right. Not, right, not to say that voting will, will make it matter. That's not what I'm saying. I just think it's a good barometer. Yeah, fair enough. So you heard it here first, folks. Marvin Gonzalez wants you to rock the vote. Yeah. I knew, yeah. I knew it. you've changed, man. I knew working in government would change you. I don't for, work in government. Not in I government, go but I'm, you know, I'm government adjacent for a governmental type person <laughs> who shall remain nameless. <laughs> uh, um, yeah, no, this. I mean, this is like deep enough into the episode, but I'm still afraid that all those fucking Jimmy Dore psychos are gonna flood flood the zone if they find out. <laughs> Can I say it? Can I? I feel like I made it weird now. Um, you can say whatever you want. This is your podcast. Can I say it. Yeah, he works for AOC, folks. There, there we go. That running dog of capitalist imperialism standing in the way of healthcare. Yeah. <laughs> How I get fired.
Uh, no, don't get fired. They, they need you. We need you. But anyway, um, so yeah, that was all very, uh, I'm learning a lot. I gotta say, so good job. Good job on that. Um, as we kind of move to the ending final portion of our show, I'm like suddenly forgot how to talk. Um, I wanted to ask, um, what's at stake for the poor and the working class people of Venezuela um, in this national project? What are they trying to defend? Um, big question, but what's your what's your take? Uh, I think I think I mean ultimately I think it comes down to sovereignty, right? Um, what what's at stake is people's right to determine their own, you know right to what's at stake is people's right to determine how to live their life and kind of how to um, best you know participate in a political system as they see fit. Um, the sanctions are are absolutely geared towards um, you know making make kind of contracting people's political options, right? Um, so so there there's a very there's a criminal aspect to this, right? Like it's it kills people. And that's not and that's something we should always talk about. But the, it is it's something political that we should also kind of think about too, right? This is made so that people do not have political options, right? And I think that as communists, this is probably where we should really kind of focus on because part of our politics has to be about kind of what is what does emancipation looks like, right? And I think emancipation looks like all of us kind of contributing to what to a political system that we think. Uh, liberates us, right? Um, it can't. It's not just about like a kind of depolitical administration of like social services, right? Like I don't, I don't think that that's what any of us that consider ourselves communists believe. It, it is really about like kind of having people be as the Venezuelans say, like protagonists in politics, right? Um, that's not possible if the richest country in the history of the world is you know um dedicated to to kind of contracting your political options right to saying that the person that you voted for is not a legitimate um you know rep is not a legitimate representative right that that in fact this person who is no longer it's wild like the joe biden still maintains that that guaido is the legitimate president of Venezuela. It's fucking hilarious. <laughs> you know, especially considering that Joe Biden stole his election. Exactly. Exactly. You know, he should understand. Um, it's it's one thing about Guaido is that he's not even so his claim to being the president is a very convoluted constitutional argument that that has a lot of holes in it. But it's fundamentally was, was fundamentally predicated on the fact that he was the president of the National Assembly. He's no longer the president of the National Assembly. He's not in, even in government anymore. There's, there's just even by his own like rationale, there is no claim for him to be the president of Venezuela. And yet, Joe Biden maintains um, Trump's foreign policy. Uh, it is, it is, just you know, it's funny, but it's also tragic, and it is absolutely geared so that people do not think that um, politics matters, that, that, that participating in politics matters, 
um, that being political uh, is kind of a, a joke. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, you can't really blame them when you see uh, Biden and Trump having exactly the same foreign policy in many areas. Like, what's what's it all for? Is this really a choice? I don't know. I don't think so. Um, not in some ways, but um, I was going to say, yeah. So what can we do as Americans looking at this situation? What can we do to help and what can we do to build uh, the kind of proletarian internationalism that we're going to need if we ever want a shot at socialism or communism? Uh, you know, I, you know, this is where I always like to quote Lenin, where he he says, like, it's not a, like an internationalist duty to to uh, critique uh, a country that your quote unquote nation is at war with. Um, not just because you don't know the language or the history or the culture, but that that kind of that kind of critique is always kind of imperialist intrigue. Uh, that like really the only task for an internationalist is to fight their own bourgeoisie, their own capitalists, uh, their own Kotskyites. Um, and I think that that remains true, right? Like I think, what can we do to help um, the Venezuelans? We can fight our own capitalist class. We can fight our own bourgeoisie. We can fight our own ruling class. We can we can fight this ridiculous notion that like Joe Biden is like uh, you know the most progressive you know political force since I don't know you know what the fuck ever he's talking about right like make it clear that there is there is no distinction on foreign policy between Biden and Trump right um, if anything like even in Cuba like I think Biden is is considering adding more sanctions right um so so just like as a matter of just like aggregating the the the, the net cruelty here like he wants to add to the horrible shit that trump has already done so i think that that's something that as socialists we should always kind of um be fighting for and making sure that like these people you know the 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 democratic establishment um joe biden they're not they're not like our allies, they are class enemies of ours. Uh, and we need to put the pressure on them to end the criminal sanctions. Um, and, and when I say criminal, I literally mean criminal. Like I, I, it is against like UN, it is against international law for uh, a country to impose sanctions on a on another country. Uh, that's why we often, you know, I've, I've been really bad about this, this whole this whole talk, but really I should be calling them unilateral coercive actions. That's what they are. Only the UN Security Council has under international law has the right to impose sanctions. Mm. Even even under US law, um, in order to, to impose sanctions, you have to say that like uh, a country presents a national security risk, which Obama did. He, he said that I think in like 2015 and everyone knew it was a joke. Everyone knew that Venezuela is not a national security risk. Venezuela has never been part of a single war. Like the last war that they fought in was their, you know, their independence war. Um, but Obama could not sanction even under US law anyone unless he just said that. So he did cynically. Everyone knew it was fake. Um, and it justifies the unilateral course of actions that he took. Aye. Well, 
I agree with most of what you just said. I don't think we're ever going to see eye to eye on, you know, people in one place being able to criticize the state of another place or, you know, state socialism writ large as route to communism, because I think this is an international movement and communists all over the world got to put our fucking heads together to figure it out, because I don't think anyone really has yet. Um, but we can certainly learn from efforts that have been made. Um, but you know what? That's all right because it's okay to disagree sometimes on the Antifada. And we like to hear from all sides, all sides from, you know, the, the more traditional stagist Marxist Leninist types of communists to the galaxy brain communization theory people. So both, both sides, many, many good people on both sides. You know, for the record, I am a, a right-wing communist, in case anyone was wondering. What, is, what does that mean? It means that like, I, I stand Bukharin and Khrushchev. All right. Well, um, some people listening will know what that means, and others are just going to have to Google it. Um, anyway, thank you so much for joining us today. I learned a lot about Venezuela and your trip there. I really like the way you say Venezuela. It's dope. That's that's how I mean I'm kind of I'm kind of being silly because that's how the fucking gusanos say it in their little videos like hi my name is uh fucking German Hausman Lopez <laughs> the third or I like Becky fucking Becky German Hausman the fourth I don't know and I'm like really concerned about what's happening in Venezuela because like they took away my dad's factory and that's really bad. And I'm just really scared that I'm not going to get my trust fund anymore. That's how that's how they pronounce it. Got it. Got it. <laughs> you're making you're making fun of the uh, those uh, Latin Americans with uh, Eichmann as a last name all living in Miami. Yeah. Pretty much, pretty much. Shout out to a friend of the show, Jake Flores, did a very funny video a couple of years back that I encourage everyone to watch who hasn't watched it yet. You know the one I'm talking about? Oh yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, it's good. Um, anyway, thanks again for coming. Always a pleasure. Um, we'll have to get a drink in person sometime because we're recording remotely and talk more and argue more about all of this stuff because we're nerds. Um, that's that's about it. Um, you got anything you want to plug before we go? Um, Partisan. I'm an editor of the Partisan Editorial Collective, and we've been putting out writing about communism and what it means. Um, read it. Partisan
arriba a la izquierda, por el socialismo, los bolivarianos revolucionarios, votamos Perú, arriba a la izquierda, por el socialismo. 